When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Duncan McCargo, a professor at the University of Copenhagen and a host on the Literature Channel. It's my great pleasure to be joined today by Irina Chevalenko, a professor of Russian at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the editor of The VoiceOver, Poems and Essays by Maria Stepanova, published by Columbia University Press in 2021. Irina, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you for having me. So let me just explain that this format was Maria's idea. She suggested that for this podcast, I talk to Irina about the book and then conduct a written interview with her. And that means around the end of 2021, you should be able to read my conversation with Maria in the literary journal, The Common, which is an academic partner of the New Books Network. But today we are asking Irina to share her understandings of Maria's work as presented in the voiceover. So... Until recently, Maria Stepanova was not all that well-known, perhaps in the English-speaking world, but 2021 was the year everything changed dramatically because not just one, but three of her books were published in English. Her novel, In Memory of Memory, came out and was shortlisted for the Man Booker International Prize. A collection of poems called War of the Beasts and the Animals appeared from Blood Axe in the UK. And then the book we're primarily discussing here, The Voiceover, which is a collection of poems and essays, was published by Columbia. So for listeners who don't know much about Maria Stepanova, could you say something about her life and work? Yes, of course. Just very briefly for now, Maria Stepanova is one of the most vocal poets and public intellectuals in Russia today. And she was born in 1972, and she represents that first post-Soviet generation. She was Mm -hmm. born in the Soviet Union, but in, uh, let's say, 1991, when the Soviet Union ceased to exist as a country, she was 19. And it is that generation that became very active on the literary 
seen during the 1990s, during the first decade after the end of the Soviet Union, is extremely strong generation of poets, especially poets, but writers in general. She is one of them. She became particularly well-known as a poet already in the first decade of the 21st century, and mm -hmm. starting with 2001, several of her poetry collections appeared in Russian, and towards the end of that first decade of the 20th century, she also started increasingly to publish as an essayist, and I would say in the first half of 2010s, she also established herself as a public intellectual, who became especially very vocal during this major political crisis of 2014-15, the war between Russia and Ukraine, or let's say the intervention of Russia in mm -hmm. Ukraine. And since then, she continues to be an essayist. And then in the middle of 2010s, she wrote and completed in 2017 her first very ambitious and, in my view, one of the most remarkable prose pieces written in Russian, at least in my lifetime, is her novel In Memory of Memory that has been by now translated into over 10 languages, including, you already mentioned, its publication in English this year and others remarkable, innovative piece of prose that combines ego fiction, memoir, essay, all together. I hope that this novel helped Maria establish her intellectual reputation in the years to come. I and mean, she's obviously a person of enormous energies and an incredible range of activity. Is it just a coincidence that three of Maria's books have appeared in English in <laughs> rapid succession like this? <laughs> Uh, I think so. <laughs> it is a coincidence. And in fact, I think all three books were planned for 2020. It was the pandemic that mm. delayed publication. I think it is a coincidence. As far as I'm concerned, I started working on this collection, The VoiceOver, in 2017, before yes. even In Memory of Memory was published in Russian. And then gradually assembled the team of translators. And in the meantime, I knew that mm -hmm. Sasha Dugdale, one of the translators who also participates in this volume, was working on her own book, which ended up being The War of the Beasts and Animals that came out mm -hmm. also this year from Bloodex. But yes, it's a coincidence. I think it's a great coincidence. It rarely yes. happens that uh, you can, uh, as a reader, at once get a very thorough picture of creative work of a foreign author in just one year. Yes, now Maria's time has really come. And now you've mentioned your role in the voiceover, which you edited. And I know that it's the result of a collaboration with a a number of very talented translators that you have brought together in this project. Can you talk a bit about how the book came about and the process that produced the volume? Oh, thank you, Duncan. Well, that's actually usually <laughs> should remain behind the curtain, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> how it all came together. But first, let me take this opportunity to name all the translators who participated Please. in this book, because this is a remarkable team of translators. I will just list them all alphabetically as they are listed on the back cover of the book. And these are Alexandra Berlinam, Sasha Dugdale, Sibyl and Forrester, Amelia Glazer, Zachary Murphy King, Dmitry Manin, Ensley Morse, Eugene Ostashevsky, Andrew Reynolds, and Maria Vasilieva. And it also happened that I myself contributed mm -hmm. a little bit to the volume to my own surprise. As I was working on editing some translations, I uh, ended up uh, collaborating more than an editor would normally mm -hmm. do. And so I translated a couple of poems with Alexandra Berlin this way, but also then tried to translate and ended up 
translating two poems myself. But this is, I don't have ambitions as translator, honestly. It just was because I liked those poems and I wanted to try my hand on them. So what's remarkable about this team is that two of the members, Sasha Dugdale and Eugene Ostashevsky, are remarkable poets uh, mm. in English language yes. themselves. And so their approach to translation is the approach of poets. Sibylan Forrester is a poet uh, as well. Others, as you can hear even from my reading these names, mm-hmm. some of those names sound Russian or Slavic yes. at least. Indeed. <laughs> and, uh, indeed. So, and for example, Alexandra Berlina, who translates from both English and Russian and German and into English and into German from Russian. Mm-hmm. So she's, she's remarkable. She lives in Germany. It's, it's just one example. Dmitry Manin, who translates also between English and Russian both ways. Maria Vasilieva, who is actually Bulgarian, but yes. translated uh, seven essays for this volume, who was, uh, as far as I understand, studied in the U.S. And so English is her uh, language of writing alongside Bulgarian. And I think the fact that all all people in this team, both experienced translators, some of them renowned translators, but also translators who are very appreciative of what the change of the language brings and subtracts Mm -hmm. (laughs) from a poem. And I think uh, there were remarkable moments in translations when I saw that certain things were actually not lost, but found in translation. But of course, we will not be discussing those small details uh, in this podcast, but I'm very proud of how this volume came together, what it is now, and how it can serve uh, for someone who is interested in poetry, who is interested in the post-Soviet, the first post-Soviet generation in Russia, reflected on history. This volume really is a primer in some sense, not only an introduction to the work of Maria, to her poetry from the late 90s through the middle of 2010s, but to, uh, in some ways, an insight into the Russian cultural landscape of the time. Right. And you're rather modest about your contributions to the actual translating, but you shouldn't uh, fail to mention also that there's this 30-page introduction that you contributed. We're <laughs> talking about the book as an introduction, but the book has its own introduction, which, which in many ways sets the scene for all that follows. So you've played obviously a central role in selecting these contributions, these translators, and writing that introduction that contextualizes them. Yes, thank you, Duncan. It's not that I wanted intentionally to be modest. I just forgot <laughs> to say that. Indeed, I also felt that it's important if you bring to a foreign reader this kind of scope of texts, you just cannot just throw them <laughs> on this reader. You may want to try to explain and to give some clues to the reader. And it was for the first time that I wrote in English about contemporary Russian mm-hmm. literature. So it uh, also was a very new thing for me. I'm a scholar of Russian modernism, and of course, I'm an avid reader of poetry in general, but I never tried to write about contemporary poetry until I wrote this this article. So I thank you for mentioning it, and I hope it was helpful for you and hopefully for others who will open this book. Yeah, I think it's more than helpful. I think it's absolutely really essential for people to understand what's going on that they start with your (laughs) introduction. So, to give us the flavor of Maria's writing, would you mind reading us one of her poems? 
Of course. And I thought about a couple of options. And perhaps I will start with a poem that was translated by Alexandra Berliner. And this is an example of what poetry translators call equimetric and equirhymed translation, which in itself is a very, very difficult task. And I think it's done marvelously. A poem comes from Maria Stepanova's collection titled Kirievsky. And the title of the collection itself may be <laughs> extremely mm. <laughs> difficult to grasp. It's a last name mm. of a 19th century Russian folklore collector of yes. uh, so who the collection was really published already after his death but his name became sort of emblematic of folklore collection as an enterprise in 19th century Russia in general mm -hmm. and when Maria chooses this last name as the title of her collection, she obviously means something. She means that the voices that we hear in these uh, poems in this collection are not exactly the voices of the author. They are mm -hmm. voices of those others whom of course she did not record but she, whose voices she attempts to assemble mm -hmm. uh, as poetic voices. And they are diverse in this particular poem that I will first read in Russian, it's fairly short, and then in translation, we actually hear voices of the deceased people, mm -hmm. the people from under the ground. So it goes like this in Russian, the poem has no title. Он лежит себе в гробу с каким-то венчиком на лбу. Такой усатый господин, а тут представился один. И вот лежит себе молчок, и его лица воротничок уже желтеет изнутри, но ты на это не смотри. Ведь он, как часики внутри, скребут себя на раз-два-три, все производит про себя глухое «так люблю тебя». Но из стоящих вдоль него никто не слышит ничего. И только мы от потолка глядим невидимы пока, и каждый знает про себя. И я командовал полком, носил во рту «люблю тебя». There he lies in his new bed, a band of paper round his head. Such a mustache gentilhomme, now in the coffin, all alone. So here he lies all numb and quiet, and the color of his face is growing yellow from inside, but you would best avert your gaze. For deep within, just like a clock that's scratching its tick-tock, tick-tock, he still produces, dull and low, he's never ceased, I love you so. But all the people at his side, they wouldn't hear him if they tried, just us. We look from the plafond, invisible but not for long, each one of us, so well we know. I too had squadrons to command, wore in my mouth, I love you so, wore round my head a paper band. And the paper band that appears in the beginning of the end is traditionally in Russian, in Russian Orthodox funeral rites, you put mm -hmm. a piece of paper or cloth on the forehead of the deceased person with a prayer written on it. So that's an example of a poem from a collection that, in fact, if we just give a general idea of what it is, it's a collection about the persistence of trauma in mm -hmm. Russian history. And the numerous voices that we hear in this collection, they all talk about trauma and about sometimes history and about individual 
experience and sense of helplessness, but also hope. So those are poems that may seem kind of difficult to approach and were very difficult to approach for Russian readers when the collection mm -hmm. first appeared. Like, what does it mean? Why are we really even hearing those voices? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's for Maria Stepanova, I think it was a very important turn in her poetics in general, just turn from self as the center of poetry to multiple centers, just to different conception of what poetic utterance is, what its pragmatic is, what it is about, how it can talk about life, not from that individual lyric perspective of the author, but from multiple perspectives. So that's, that's one of the poems that does that. Right. And these are themes that obviously come up again and again. I suppose my understanding of Karevsky is fairly limited and comes mainly from reading your introduction. But my understanding is that he didn't collect all of these texts himself. People sent in all sorts of bits and pieces of, of folklore and so on to him. And some of the things that they sent in, they had edited or changed around or mangled in some way. So the whole question of authenticity becomes incredibly difficult to pin down in these voices. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's very important, very liberating for Stepanova to think about it in the, exactly in those terms. So authenticity is not what you can achieve as a modern poet trying to speak in someone else's voice. So you don't even try to do that. But what you can consciously try to do mm. is to try to get to the core of the experience of people who are not you. And that's what Pano has been doing in that collection and in a lot of her subsequent writing. Right. Well, let me at this point have the audacity to read a bit of one of Maria's poems myself. And this is one which you cite in your introduction and you talk about and discuss there quite a bit because it's one of her most important poems of recent years, which is called Spolia. And I'll just read some of the first few lines translated by Sasha Dugdale. Totted up what was said amounted to she simply isn't able to speak for herself. And so she always uses rhyme in her poems, ersatz and out-of-date poetic forms. Her material offers no resistance. Its kiss is loveless. It lies motionless. She's the sort you'd lift onto a chair. Read us the poem about wandering lonely. She's the sort who once made a good Soviet translator, careful, unadventurous. Where is her eye? Place it in the dish. Why on earth does she speak in voices? Voices she has adopted, in quote marks. Obs, anyone without an eye cannot adopt anything. For anyone without an eye will wander begging arms, pretending to be a corner a jar of mayonnaise, a cat, although no one believes him quite. I'm a bagel, I'm a bagel, says the speaker without an eye. Some people are stuffed with soft cheese, but oh no, not me. Some people are engorged with character and culture, potato scones, hot stones. I've got the biggest hole, empty, yawning. I'm the earth I send my cosmonauts floating, the mouths of my eaters, the teeth of my tenants converging from the east and the south, they take a last chew, swallow, when a final naught has licked up the last crumb. Fire's sharp tongue will scour the granaries. I won't even remain as air, shifting, refracting sound, fading with the light on the river's ripple, sucking the milk and vodka from still moist lips. Anyone without an eye is permitted a non-eye appearance, once 
Liberty. Thank you. Thank you. That was a wonderful reading. <laughs> well, I'm glad you like it. I, I have very little qualification for reading these poems, but I couldn't resist. Yeah. And, and it's extremely tempting to go on and on. I mean, here and again in Maria's poetry, I'm reminded very much of T.S. Eliot and especially the wasteland because of several things, her use of illusion, the fragmentary quality of the narration, and then partly because of the way she deploys this range of voices in different registers. And there are a couple of lines from that passage I just read out that really stand out. She isn't able to speak for herself. And why on earth does she speak in voices? Can you answer the second question? Why on earth does she speak in voices? <laughs> well, I think so. I mean, as someone who reads poetry and read a lot of poetry from early part of the 20th century and reads contemporary poetry, I can say that, in fact, in contemporary poetry, it became one of the ways uh, for poets to achieve several different goals. Mm -hmm. Why on earth would poets not, not only speak in voices, but mm -hmm. just speak in third person as yes. if they write a philosophical treatise or as if uh, they write a proclamation <laughs> and so mm -hmm. on. So there are various reasons why this kind of lyrical eye is being consciously removed from poetry by various authors. Mm -hmm. I think in Maria's case, and she actually talks about that in one of her essays that I also included in this book, it is called Displaced Person. Yes. And the title doesn't mean what we think it means, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> because the phrase has historical connotations. But here, displaced person refers to displaced first person, displaced yes. that I that is delegated to someone else. So why on earth would you do that? You would do that in order to overcome, as far as I understand from her writing, Maria uh, Stepano perceives as a limitation that keeps poetry from reaching out to great audience in some sense who is interested in your individual eye. <laughs> so mm, yes. why, what can be your strategy to assert, to continue asserting this romantic or near-romantic uh, value of mm -hmm. an individual eye of a writer? So she felt at a certain point in her career, she wrote conventional lyric poetry before that, but she felt at a certain moment in her career that path somehow, at least in today's context, is not leading where, where she herself wants to be and where she feels she can find the reader as well. And it doesn't mean that her poetry became easier for the reader as she mm -hmm. switched to this different mode of writing. In fact, I think it became even more experimental Mental. But yes. in her own sense, I think it's uh, you as an author uh, just go through certain stages, and at some point, you yourself are bored with yourself. <laughs> and for a lyric poet, I think it's a great challenge. Like, until for how long can you continue to be fascinated with what is going on exactly in your life? So, I think that's one explanation, one way to at least to relate to her strategy as poet. She wants to say, I am aware that I, as just one person and there are many people who do not have voice and that's another motif at the end of mm -hmm. spolia so like speaking on behalf of those who cannot speak but she turns it she phrases it differently she speaks about people who speak the way that she mm -hmm. cannot yet speak Speak. So she, in other words, kind of gives value to that language that has never been poetic language, but she wants to make it poetic language to make that different register of speech into poetry.
So I think that's that's one way to put it. Yes, I'm going to put on the to the new books website the link to the book launch event that you also did for the book, and there Maria appears, and she's asked a question relating to this, and she says, "Well, why should I sing with a solo voice when I could sing as a choir?" Which I thought was a beautiful <laughs> explanation of exactly the answer to this question. Yeah, I agree with with that, and I think if you if you ask her for a longer answer as you conduct your interview with her, she'll probably give you a more elaborate one. Mm-hmm. For that. Right. So there are these figures, and we may talk about more of them, who seem to be present in some way in Maria's writing, and another of them is Joseph Brodsky. Would you like to read the poem that you translated about Brodsky? Yes, let's do that. Just with a caveat that it's a co-translation yes. of Ale- Alexandra Berlema and myself. And this poem was written and it reflects on visiting Joseph Broski's grave in Venice. He's yes. buried in Venice on an island. So the cemetery is an island where he's buried. And it's important. I will read the second uh, part. It's, it's the poem that consists of two parts and I will read the second part only. And before I read the poem, I read the author's note to this particular section because it's important. It describes the gravestone. The gravestone that interested us distinguished itself among the neighboring ones with a folder all swollen with rainwater full of business cards, notes, photocopies of poems, and articles, a little bottle of vodka, and a toy plastic bucket full of non-refillable pens. Here's the poem. And I also must note that in this poem, uses uses Joseph Brodsky's own poem, an elegy he wrote for the death of T.S. Eliot. <laughs> so <Yes. that's, laughs> we are coming the full circle. The lineage is very clear. Yes. We are uh, coming full circle here. Okay, so the poem. Doctors, lectors and actors, young widows, leave their photos and cards, leave their bottles and hats, all their hurried confessions on the window sill of love's limit. The utmost, the utmost rung, the final address, the gravestone. But beyond the gravestone, there's nothing, not a bond. There is no more, just money on your tongue. America... His place of death, Europa, the one he stole and bedded, his affair, and native land. With hand outstretched elsewhere, her features covered up and bottom bare, the three perform a primavera ring, their heads together in an ancient vein. But every tombstone is the edge of things, and trees like walking canes. Take this bouquet. Transparent paper mates, the bodies living off the ink they spent amid the fictions, little clouds and shades over the fate you hoped to circumvent that of a god, one of so many gods. Vertonus, James Priapus, you are the third. In light and shade, your marbled vision blurred a faceless patron of the written word. This tiny island bears all that passed. The size of an archangel's palm, this oven bakes everything until it's interwoven, a pie where single lines try hard to last, 
just numbers, rarely letters to be seen, and rarer still with my tongue in accord that darkens for me, humid as a board, which you've wiped clean. So since we're on this wonderful cycle, Kirevsky, is there another poem from the series that you'd like to read us? Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Duncan. There's another one I think would just be a good pair for the one I read in which we hear voices from beyond the grave. Mm. So this, this is another voice of a person who goes along trains and sings songs inside the trains. Mm. And this voice of the singer who is recounting the experience of singing. So here's, here's the poem. It is in wonderful translation of uh, Eugene Astor. It has no title. A train is riding over Russia along some great river. The passengers took off their shoes. The conductors don't look sober. Slippery with grease and dreamy, chicken thighs go sailing by the faces of huddled humanity like trees in unsteady water. I walk in state-owned throw through train cars full of people and sing as earnestly as a saved soul in paradise. It's a dirty job, even dirtier than the bossman conductor might deem, for a quality song in our business always rises up to a scream. Ladies gasp when with my naked larynx over the knee-jerk cursing of men, I sing of how puppies turn even more red when the blood of our commander drips down on their head. My voice makes a hole in the comfort of the car like an out-of-nowhere shiv. Everyone starts feeling downcast and takes turn beating me by the toilet. An honest song has such outrage in it. The heart cannot stomach the shame. The passengers keep their defenses up like a tear in the middle of a face. Yes, going on a journey across Russia. <laughs> it's a journey across Russia. It's singing <laughs> yes. and and response of the audience, right? So we can yes. uh, read this poem at different levels right. and think about it as a reflection of what? Of this simple singer who sings for money in trains of a poet who reflects on yes. the effect of his or her work on the audience and the response of the audience to words. So this beating <laughs> beating of the singer as a very powerful and kind of unexpected moment in that poem. And this is what I think, as well as other imagery, is what makes it so dense. I mean, it's so interesting, this, these allusions back to different figures. And one of the things that I'm fascinated by about Stepanova's writing is that it's partly related to this idea of singing like a choir, but you always feel like you're not just with her. And of course, this comes through very strongly in, in Memory of Memory as well, that it's as though you're in a room and she's there with a whole lot of other people <laughs> who keep popping up. They make these kind of cameo appearances, sort of talking on behalf of them. So, you know, we have Elliot, we have Brodsky, we have Pushkin, we have W.G. Seabold, there's Susan Sontok, there's Maria Sveteva, and others 
Can you explain how this works? How <laughs> the the, uh, the Maria Stepanova pantheon? Where do they come from, and how does she relate to these people who are clearly influencing her beyond the grave? Yes, of course, and I think that you know this ending of this poem to Brodsky is something important on exactly that matter. So this this image of a blackboard or a board mm-hmm. where words were written and which is wiped clean and ready for a new author to write on it, but it's wiped clean. It's an illusion that it's wiped clean. <laughs> it's wiped clean, and you can write. It's for you now. It's your turn. Mm-hmm. But you are aware of so many words that have been erased but not fully erased because you remember them. So they are not written there anymore but they are ingrained in your mind in your memory. And in today's literary landscape, as far as I understand, both in Russia and in the West, in Anglophone poetry, it's only one of the ways you can write. There are poets who actually intentionally avoid allusions, avoid evoking any clear literary references in their writing, because there are so many by now that cannot expect your reader to know all of them. And Maria Stepanova, actually, in one of her later poems polemicizes openly with this particular idea that you should write without quotations. Don't expect that the reader knows them. And in that, she retains this more of modernist approach mm-hmm. to writing. It's important. I am aware that I'm standing on the shoulders of tradition. And I am aware of that, and I want the reader to be aware of that, to try to get to understand what this what exactly those shoulders are, because any new word that you say is somehow, it's one of the ways of literary economy. (laughs) You say a word that contains a sentence, you have an utterance that contains an allusion to something that enriches your sentence, your every line because it requires this depth in the history of literature, in the history of thinking, mm-hmm. uh, of, of human culture. And it's extremely important for her. It's her position. It's not a universal position, but it's genuinely her individual position. And the, the names that you mentioned, Susan Zontag and Zebold, uh, of course, one of the most important authors mm-hmm. for her as a prose writer and essays, of course. And all the poets that we've mentioned and not yet mentioned, Walt, Walt Whitman and Ezra right. Pound, who right. make appearance in her longer poems as you said. So all of that is extremely important because this way you say something in a more concise way. Your poem is short. It can be very short, four-liner, eight-liner, but it's actually much longer because of how how references that that it evokes work and help build its actual uh, message and meaning. So sticking with that theme of water, I'm going to read an extract from one of the essays in the book now, turning to the prose. This is an essay called After the Dead Water, originally published in Russian in 2014. They say that if you file down the very tip of a crow's bill, the bird will start crashing into things, the fine-tuned sense of direction, the organ of long-range connection to the future will cease to work. All distances will collapse into one. All sense of proportion will be lost. There will be no exit. I believe this is how we orient ourselves in time. If we file down our sense of tomorrow, we will always crash 
into the corners and cornices of the past, which is all there is to it anyway. It's interesting to think about the distortions that happen in a mind that makes no provisions for the future, which has been disinfected, anesthetized, carefully masked under the guise of the present or excluded and ignored like a faux pas. In a world that contains just the present and past, any personal choice loses its substance. Events happen as though of their own accord, following the will of things without any desire on the part of participants who are barely even participating, just using the circumstances that befell them. Everything that happens has a whole nomenclature of prototypes, which makes it easy to relieve oneself of responsibility, to spread it across a dozen convenient generalizations. Some of them you hear very often. We have to compromise in difficult times. Artists have always collaborated with those in power. There has always been censorship. Always is a key word here. It allows us to not be the exception. The future as a paradigm shift, an opportunity to act not as always, evokes great distress. But there's no place to hide anymore. History has caught up with us, and it won't be easy to work ourselves free from it. We could, of course, wind back what can be rewound, erase accidental features, the feverish fluorescence of movies and books, exhibitions and shows, falafel and meatball shacks, and prepare for a long siege. This is already happening a little bit. State television is mimicking the Soviet 70s and 80s. The press is eager to catch up with it. Things that until recently seemed like a collection of artifacts, souvenirs of lost times, have suddenly acquired an unexpected, terrifying cohesion. As if everything that spent decades locked up in attics, crypts, and other far corners of the mind has suddenly joined a parade of dead things. It's like the old fairy tale. They put together the rotting pieces of the dead man, splashed some black water on him, and he shuddered. And now his unseeing eyes are about to open. But this very water is unalive. It pulls together the mishmash of the late Putin years into a kind of system. It holds together layers of language that have burnt down to ashes, lets them rise to the surface once more. Before it disappears, the dead should become solid, whole and visible, and one can't turn away from it or hide from it. Vladimir Prop writes about this. The hero is first splashed with dead water and then with living water. The dead water finishes him off, turns him into someone definitely dead. It's a kind of funeral rite corresponding to the covering with earth. Only now is he an actual dead person and not a creature caught between the two worlds, which can come back as a vampire. Only now, after the sprinkling with dead water, can the living water act. The dead water has been poured. Now we live to see the water of life. Yes, yeah. thank you, Duncan. Yeah, so this is where some context may be very helpful, I think, for our listeners. Obviously, it's going to be simplistic to think of Stepanova as some sort of dissident writer in this classic Soviet model that people might have in their mind. She's going to resist that sort of caricature. But it's also obvious that the authoritarian turn that's been widespread all over the world is something that's become much more apparent in Russia during the past decade. And it's obviously affected her and her writing. How would you characterize Stepanova's relationship 
to the changing politics of today's Russia? Oh, thank you for this question, Duncan. And of course, a good part of this book answers this question. And the essay from which you read is called After the Dead Water. It's dated by November 2014, yes. which is the time of the active phase of the Russia's intervention in eastern Ukraine. This is already after the annexation of Crimea. Yes. So this is the beginning of the political turmoil that hasn't ended, that wasn't mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, since then. Manu wrote several essays during this crisis in Ukraine. This is one of them. And the section of that essay speaks for itself. It's not a dissident writing because mm-hmm. the very concept of dissidence is no longer relevant, I right. believe. And despite all the course of the development of politics in Russia, in the past decade. It's still, I think, it's uh, it's an anachronistic term, but she, of course, has a very strong position in terms of how she sees the current political climate in Russia. She is among many in Russia, especially many intellectual circles who are terrified by the direction in which the country has been going, mm-hmm. not even since 2014, I would say since 2011. That's the real beginning of the crisis when Putin decided to become a president yet again and then the rest. So it's already a decade of deterioration, of progressive deterioration of what looked for her and in general for the entire generation the 1990s. (laughs) It seems like it will be the first truly happy, (laughs) or can be the first truly happy generation, at least of educated Russians. So those who clearly were young at the time of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, who discovered new opportunities for themselves, who indeed used uh, those opportunities, who did their best to to really change the perception of outside Russia, and who now feel that they failed all around. So, and it's a very, very uneasy and uncomforting feeling. It's a feeling that you can still say those words, you can still very clearly delineate your position, but you lost all opportunity to influence what's happening. You're rather finding yourself in a position in which you could not even think of finding yourself 20 years ago, right? Right. So you felt that now, finally, (laughs) you're right in the history. And that's exactly the feeling with which uh, this generation was living for quite a while, that they are right in the history. They meaning that part of society that was genuinely uh, liberated and happy mm-hmm. about the changes. And, and now it looks like the history is written not by them. Maybe it's a temporary, and hopefully, of course, it's, it's always temporary. It's just not clear how long that will last and just want to say that the two longer poems you quoted from one of them, Spolia, and then the other one is mm-hmm. War of the Beasts and the Animals. And yes. that's exactly Panova's way of giving a name to mm-hmm. the Russo-Ukrainian War, the Beasts and the Animals title that encapsulates this language of hate, and at the same time pointlessness of hate <laughs> directed by beasts and animals and animals mm-hmm. into beasts. So both poems are not only political declarations, they are very complex complex works of literature, but there, of course, it was very important for Stepanova at that time to be the voice of different Russia and to say what that other Russia felt and how it felt about the ongoing political disaster. 
And does that mean that in subsequent years she hasn't been writing in this kind of way, that you've picked out these essays and, and poems as exemplars of that particular period and that now she's moved on? Not exactly. She simply worked on other things. This In Memory of Memory, I think, took part of 2010s. Mm -hmm. And no, in fact, the most recent poetry collection that just came out a month ago in Moscow, and hope at least parts of it will be translated very soon. I know that Eugenia Stashevsky was working on translating parts of that collection. It actually is very, very strong statement, again, that was both political and literary on what's currently happening in Russia. So it's just not in this book, because this book could, was conceived in 2017, and but definitely it remains an, an important part of her agenda as a poet to speak about today. You've partly anticipated my last question, which is, where do we go from here? I think we're all expecting much more from Maria Stepanova, and what does she have in store for us, do you think? Well, with this question, I think you would better <laughs> you would get a better answer from the author herself. But as I said, this new collection came yes. out. I know that even after this volume, this particular volume was conceived, there was one more poetry collection uh, published in 2020, late 2019, early 2020. So, and from that, I know that Sasha Dagdale has been translating more individual pieces. One of them was included in her book, Wolf, the Beast and the Animals. The, the last piece there is called The Body Returns. And there are several other pieces that she's translating from this 2020 collection. As I mentioned, the newest one from which Eugene Stashevsky has been translating at least parts. So, I hope that. Those will appear in English language quite soon. And from what I know, she is working on a new book of prose, so another novel. And she definitely will let you know <laughs> yes. what it is as much as she's ready to talk about it. But yes, I think she, uh, she seems to be, I mean, contrary to everything that happens in Russia, the politically and on the stage of creative development, uh, she is probably one of the most interesting and we'll expect we hope to see more of her work published in Russian soon and hopefully translated now into other languages much sooner than the work from previous decades because definitely the success of In Memory of Memory and yes. I hope the success of these two books, Sasha Dugdale's War of the Beast mm -hmm. Animals and our book, The Voiceover, will help to draw readers to contemporary Russian literature in general and to Panova's work in particular. Yes, and it seems that the two things are going on rather nicely. One is that she is at the height of her powers and productivity and you've also now, a group of you really assembled the operation required to get <laughs> this wonderful writing translated into English and out there for a, a larger audience that doesn't read Russian. So that's really fantastic. Yes, indeed. And let's hope she'll get recognition outside Russia, as she did in Russia already. And this will also help to bring more of contemporary Russian literature that is very, very strong, interesting, powerful right. to the attention of Western audiences. Irina, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on the New Books Network. I hope we've helped to, to boost interest in not just the voiceover, but also in Maria Stepanova's remarkable writings, which you've played an invaluable role in making available to a broader international audience. Thank you very much, Duncan. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all the time that you gave me to talk about it. I'm Duncan McCargo. I've been in conversation with Irina 
Chevalenko, the editor of The VoiceOver, an important collection of poems and essays by the brilliant Russian writer Maria Stepanova, which is just out from Columbia University Press. You've been listening to the New Books Network Literature Channel. <laughs>